Morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, welcome, welcome along to Trinity Church today. Uh, thanks so much for coming. It's good to see uh, a few new faces with us this morning. Uh, and uh, I just want to say it's great. Uh, I guess you've kind of had the full gamut of elders this morning. What's the plural word for elders? I wonder. I'll let you all decide. Some of you probably will be ruder than others. Um, but uh, it, it, I, I, I so enjoy and I'm grateful to lead alongside Malk and Caleb. Caleb particularly is a guy who you see us a lot more than you see him on a Sunday. But the three of us together have uh, worked and planned and, and prayed uh, and led through the past three years, really. Um, and so if you don't know Caleb particularly, I would say go, go hang out with him and spend some time with him. He's all right. So, uh, yeah. And, and, and Malk definitely is the optimist amongst us this morning. I love the fact that he was like, the heating is on. It's freezing. So um, uh, I have emailed them every single week. I will keep emailing until they actually work out how to stop pumping freezing cold air in on a Sunday morning. But um, keep your coats handy. Let's just say that. And uh, hopefully the Spirit of God will warm our hearts, even if... We freeze to death together. Um, well, uh, do keep your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 4. That is, that is a long chapter. Um, each week we've had long chapters, but I think this one is the longest so far. Um, and it will just be helpful for you to have it in front of you as, as we study it together. Because I'm sure at different points as we were reading along there, you kind of zoned out and then you're like, well, where were we? What, what's going on right now? So uh, have it open uh, as we listen to what God has to say to us this morning. We've been talking over the past few weeks from the book of Daniel about what it means for Christians to stay woke. There's a phrase that we uh, hear a whole variety of different people using uh, at the moment. We said last week that what we mean uh, to uh, what it means to stay woke for Christians is that we are alert to God's presence and purposes in our lives and the church and the world. Our hope, each and every day as we live our lives, is rooted most deeply not in our family or our circumstances or our politics or our job. It's rooted and resting in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we believe here at Trinity. That's what the Bible holds out to us today. That's what we need to be awake to as we live our lives each and every day. That's the thing that helps us to be a force for good in the world. That's the thing that keeps us hopeful, even in hard times. And Daniel 4 shows us again today how we do that. It applies it for us. So let me pray for us again, just as we come to Daniel 4, and ask God to speak for, to us this morning as we come to his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now to send your spirit amongst us. Uh, we need you, Holy Spirit, to empower us to open our minds, to open our hearts to the words that we hear and read on this page. Because, Lord, we know that you speak to us through your Bible. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shows us where we are to go. So lead us now. Spirit of God, accompany the preaching of the gospel with power and show us Jesus, we pray. Show us Jesus, 
that our hope may be founded firmly in him. And we ask it in his name. Amen. You know, the book of Daniel is full of remarkable stories. I think we've seen that so far over the the past few weeks. Some of them are so fantastic that it's hard to believe that they are true. Of course, we we can believe that they are true because of the nature of who God is. He is the God who can do the impossible. He uh, can reveal dreams. He can rescue from the flames. As we'll see in a couple of weeks' time, he he can close the mouths of lions. But you know, today's story in Daniel chapter 4 is, to my mind, perhaps the most remarkable and shocking story that we've read together so far. Now, perhaps some of you are surprised to hear me say that. Because in one sense, some of the events that take place in this story are not as mind-blowing as some of the things we've seen so far. Um, I mean, perhaps the biggest thing that, that, that it's hard to get our heads around is, is there in verse 33, um, that, that Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven his, and his, until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Can we really believe that something like that could happen to somebody? Well, the answer actually is yes, we can. Uh, what is being described here? is an exceptionally rare but clinically recognized psychological disorder known today as boanthropy, uh, where sufferers believe themselves to be a cow or an ox. It's apparently an extremely rare form of psychosis. I'm not a medical professional. There are some of you here today. Please go and talk to them afterwards about it, not me. Um, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, What we see here today in Daniel 4, is a man suffering a severe mental health crisis. Um, It's an exceptionally rare condition, but medically speaking, it's well within the realms of believability. There are other examples of people behaving in exactly the same way. So that's not the reason this morning why I say that this is a particularly remarkable and shocking story for us to read. What is remarkable, I think, about Daniel 4 is that it is Nebuchadnezzar himself who tells the story. This is a story of his abject humiliation. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that he was the last person you might expect to speak about himself that way. As the emperor of the Babylonian Empire 2,600 years ago, Nebuchadnezzar II was honored like a god. His word was law. His will was absolute. And he was a tyrant whose power and ruthlessness has rarely been matched throughout history. As we saw last week in Daniel 3, he had no problem burning his enemies when they refused to obey his commands. That's the kind of guy he was. And when you are a tyrant like that, you have an image to maintain. We all have an image to maintain, right? But our entire edifice of life does not quite depend upon it in the same way as Nebuchadnezzar, which makes it all the more astonishing that we have this public personal statement revealing his utter humiliation addressed, we see in verse 1, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. So this is not just a quiet 
conversation with a friend. This is not just a personal letter that he penned, letting, uh, I don't know, one of his closest confidants know what had been going on. This is his Instagram story, right? This is his press release. And he's using it here, not to big himself up, but to describe his own humiliation and dishonor. If I asked one of you right now to step down here and speak about the most humiliating moment of your life, when you are at your absolute lowest and most vulnerable, the point of greatest shame in your life, the time of your deepest failure, I, I pretty much guarantee that there are not many of us in this room who would be excited to volunteer for that opportunity this morning. You know, I, I often tell you guys stories which are semi-embarrassing to me, but I don't tell you the really bad ones, right? And I'm sure that you know what that is like. You'll tell the story about the time when you fell over and dropped the tea on the floor or whatever. You won't talk about the time when you sinned so horrifically that it keeps you awake at night. And yet, that's the kind of story that Nebuchadnezzar II is telling us here. And he tells us in verse 3 why he does it. He wants us to know, all the peoples of the earth, including us today, that God is powerful and that he rules. He says in verse 3, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. That is the point that we are to see from this story. That is the headline. That's what Nebuchadnezzar means to convey in Daniel chapter 4. This is the truth that we need to be awake to as we interact with the world around us, as we live our lives every day, as we shop in Aldi, as we take our kids to school, as we go about our daily lives. And as he tells his story, King Nebuchadnezzar is asking us an implicit question, which I want us to consider today. And it's this. Where does your security lie? Where does your security lie? You know, before I became a pastor, uh, I worked for an engineering recruitment company. And uh, I remember one day our managing director doing a presentation for the staff. You'd always do presentations from time to time. Apparently, this is how you motivate sales teams. We're not just going to go and do things by ourselves. You have to get everyone in the room, and you have to tell them some big, inspirational things that will make us work harder. And he said something in that presentation that really stuck with me. He said, the more sales that you make, the more money will go into your pocket. And the more money that goes into your pocket means more security for you. That's what he said at the time. And I, I remember at the time, I thought, that is an incredibly insightful thing to say. That, I think, is how most people think about money. We want money for a variety of reasons, but one of which is that we might be secure. We talk about having financial security, don't we? And so much of our lives is spent pursuing security in a whole variety of different areas, whether it's healthcare, career, family, friends. We want to be protected 
insulated from tragedy and crisis. And we seek that security in a whole variety of different places. And if we're fortunate enough, as many of us are, living in the West, to achieve a degree of financial and relational security, we feel secure, I think. It's a good feeling to have. And that's what we find, where we find Nebuchadnezzar at the start of this story in verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. He's got his feet up. He's watching Netflix. He's having a good day, right? Nebuchadnezzar, things are going well for him. He's secure, he's content, and he lives in the lap of luxury. This is a guy who never lost a battle. He was dominant on the world stage at this time in history. And yet one night, similar to chapter 2, he is again plagued by a terrifying dream. As we said a couple of weeks ago, this is an enchanted culture filled with omens. Black cat walks across our path, we don't, we don't think twice about it. There, that would mean something. And dreams meant something to the Babylonians. But this time, the dream that he has uh, in verse 10, he sees a vision of an enormous tree, a world-filling tree that reaches to the sky. And it's magnificent, this tree. It is large, it is strong, it is beautiful, and it provides every creature on earth with shelter and food. Now, I want to just draw your attention to that fact, because the security of every creature on earth is found in the prosperity of the tree. That's what's going on. The creatures love the tree because it provides them with a place to sleep. It provides them with their food. But then into this dream comes a messenger from heaven who announces the tree's destruction. Cut down, branches stripped with just a stump left, bound in the ground by iron and bronze. Now, if that isn't bad enough news... Then comes these worrying words in verses 15 and 16. It says, speaking of the stump, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar realizes that this, this stump is a person who is going to be afflicted with a terrible mental illness. And so he summons, again, as we've seen already, he summons all the gang together, gets his astrologers, enchanters, magicians, wise men, Harry Potter, all of them. They all come in. Guys, what does this dream mean? They, they go, we don't know. Now, maybe they did know, because it's not that difficult, I don't think, to interpret what is, what's going on in this dream. And they were probably just too scared to say it. And then eventually Daniel comes uh, to speak to the king. Sidebar for a moment, I think this is really helpful for us, those of us who are Christians, and instructive the way that Daniel speaks to the king in terms of us talking to other people about the bad news and the good news of the gospel. Okay, Daniel didn't just barrel in there and say, dude, you are in major trouble. You've been proud. You've set yourself up against God and he is going to smash you. That is not how Daniel spoke. 
He wasn't just concerned with putting out the truth of the interpretation. He was actually concerned with the king himself. It says uh, in verse 19, Then Daniel was greatly perplexed. His thoughts terrified him. And then he said, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. He cares about the man he is speaking to. He speaks with compassion with wisdom and with tact. And yet, because he loves him, he also doesn't hide the truth from him. I think that's just a really helpful sidebar note for us this morning as we think about how we tell people about Jesus. Because there's hard things that God has to say to us often. But we don't just smash it in someone's face. We do have to be truthful, but we do it with compassion, with a tear in our eyes sometimes. Because uh, this is the message for Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar there in verse 22. Your majesty, you are that tree. Now let me ask the question. Why does God do this? What's the reason for this awful intervention in Nebuchadnezzar's life? It's bad news for him. More than that, it's bad news for the wild animals and the birds and all the peoples of the world who are provided for and protected by Nebuchadnezzar's power and strength and who will flee from the tree when it is cut down. The answer is found in a repeated phrase that crops up three times in verses 17, verses 25, and verses 32. Uh, in uh, the Old Testament, when... Uh, you are writing in those days, you don't have um, the ability to put text in bold. You know, like if you want to emphasize something in an email, you would capitalize it, put it in bold as if you are shouting it loudly. They didn't have that ability. And so the literary device you use in order to emphasize what you really want to communicate is you just repeat it. And that's what we see here in Daniel 4 uh, in verses, uh, what did I say, 17, 25, and 32. This is the meaning of the dream. And again, repeats uh, the big idea that we actually have already mentioned uh, in verse 3. So let's look at what verse 17 says. It says this. The decision is announced by messengers or angels. Um, the holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of peoples. Why is God going to do this? The answer is because we, the living, need to know that our security is not found in the tree that is Nebuchadnezzar. Each of us have different metaphorical trees, if you like, that provide us with shelter, and it's a shelter that is real and that we enjoy. But when heaven lays the axe to the base of the tree in which we trust, it is done to remind us that our security must be found in God alone. Because he is the sovereign one. That is the big theological point, if you like that we find in Daniel 4. God is the sovereign one. Honestly, if we were going to uh, take the whole book of Daniel and distill it down into one simple idea, I'd say that this is it, that God is the sovereign one. 
Now, that's not language that we particularly use every day, is it? Um, perhaps you've heard it said about God before. Um, but what we're talking about here in Daniel 4 is the question of who rules. Who is in charge of the world? Sovereign is a title that we give to kings and queens. The queen is our sovereign. She rules. She's in charge, kind of. I mean, you know, we all know it doesn't really work that way, but we all pretend for tourism, right? And yet we're talking about a different degree of sovereignty here in Daniel 4 when we speak of God as the sovereign one. First, we see in verse 3, his rule is an eternal rule. It has no beginning and it has no end. At some point we know, don't we, all kings and queens are coronated, they ascend the throne for the first time, and at some point they die and pass the crown on to the next person. But that's not true of God. He has always reigned. He reigns today, and sometimes we can struggle to believe that, but it is true. And he will always reign forever. His kingdom is eternal. That is a different quality of sovereignty. That's the first thing. And secondly, we see in Daniel 4 that his rule has no boundaries. In the olden days, in ancient times, it was believed that gods ruled over a particular territory. And so the gods of Babylon was Marduk. The gods of Egypt looked after the Egyptians. But in verse 17, what does uh, what the angel announce? What does Nebuchadnezzar echo and learn uh, as part of his experience? That God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. Which means, my friends, that you cannot go anywhere that does not belong to Jesus. You cannot. There is no part of the world, however dark, however chaotic, that is not ruled by the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. It was said once that Queen Victoria used to govern a quarter of the earth's land service as empress of the British Empire. Well, the Bible is telling us here, a quarter is nothing to be impressed by. Jesus rules it all. All the kingdoms of the earth. That's the second thing we learn about the sovereignty of God in, the, in this passage. The third thing we learn is that his rule is active. He doesn't just ignore what is happening. He's not the kind of king who's like, great, I rule, but I'm never going to go there. I'm not interested in what's happening there. I'm just going to let other people deal with what's going on. Daniel 4 tells us that God gives the kingdoms to whomever he wishes. He is involved in our world. Now, that, again, I think is sometimes quite hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, we look out of our window, we watch the news, and it seems like things are spinning kind of out of control, often. We might think that the world seems like an enormous mess. Uh, COP26 is going to be in Glasgow in a few weeks' time. Uh, I think it starts next weekend, actually. Praise the Lord that we don't live in Glasgow, because it's going to be crazy. Um, there's going to be a lot of loud, angry people, a lot of important people who will close lots of the main roads and lock up everything. It's going to be like park life times a thousand. Um, a lot of talking will happen. And here's my prophecy. 
not very much is going to be achieved, right? And plenty of people at the end of that will despair and say, what useless leaders, we are doomed. The world is going to end. But what does Daniel 4 tell us? God rules. God's still in control. And he has appointed good leaders and bad leaders. The course of the world's politics is not outside of his command. He's not sat there on the throne of heaven going, oh man, why didn't they, why didn't they just do this? You know, I, I wish it was working out this way. No, God rules. He is in control. But, but of course, fourthly, that doesn't mean that he always approves of everything that, that happens, of, of all world leaders and their politics and policies. Clearly not. I mean, if Nebuchadnezzar teaches us anything, it is that God uses godless leaders to achieve his purposes in the world as well as good ones. You know, ultimately, there has only ever been one human leader that God has completely approved on, of and, and, and ratified. Tony Blair. No, not Tony Blair. <laughs> and not Boris Johnson either. Tony Blair thinks it, and so does Boris, I think. No. Who was it who he said this of? This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus is the only one who did everything that the Father wanted him to, perfectly aligned with his will. Which means, brothers and sisters, no matter your political persuasion today, if Jesus is not on the ballot paper, then you are voting for a flawed person. Whoever it is, who rules and reigns the particular kingdoms of the world, whoever occupies the presidency, whoever is the prime minister or dictator or despot or whatever it might be, whoever's head the crown rests upon is a flawed person. And so we cannot say that God approves of everything that they do. None of them. There are, we know, some awful leaders in the world. And yet we are able to say that God still knows what he is doing. Now, what that means, there's a few things that means, but I think one of the things it means is that we should be really grateful for the leaders and governors that we have. I was really encouraged to hear that a few of you this past week actually wrote to our, our MP, Christian Wakeford, in, uh, in the wake of the awful uh, murder of Sir David Amos earlier uh, last week. Um, a, a few folks from our church Wrote, wrote to Christian, uh, he was here actually this past summer, it was great to have him here, and just expressed our support for him and how grateful we are that he is our MP and that he serves our community. I'm sure right now he's feeling vulnerable and we recognize that he's not just there as an accident, God as the sovereign one over Berry Ward, electoral ward, South Berry Ward electoral ward, has, has, has put him here to serve the people. And so we're grateful. Uh, we're grateful for him. But whilst it, uh, these things teach us that, that we have to be grateful for our, our elected leaders and representatives, it also teaches us, exposes to us the folly of trusting our leaders to provide ultimate security. That is a bad place to put your trust in. 
It exposes to us the folly of, of trusting in anything else to put our ultimate security in. You know, Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that. That was something he didn't understand. Uh, his words, as he looked out over Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world, sum up how we often think about the kingdoms and the powers that we see, and indeed how we often think about our own achievements. He said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I built it by my power for my glory. That's what we often like to think. But we are wrong. God is the sovereign one. He is in control. The kingdoms of the earth exist for his glory. He is the one who grows and empowers them all. And so God will not allow Nebuchadnezzar to think that way. He needs him to see the error of his ways. He needs him to know that heaven rules. And the reason, I think, that we see God doing this is not because God demands us to bow the knee because he needs something from us. No, it's because, it's because we need to find true shelter under the greater tree. That's ultimately what is going on here in Daniel 4. We need to take shelter under the greater tree. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. Um, many of you will no doubt remember the first ever Trinity Church picnic that we held earlier this summer. Now, some of you are laughing because you know where I'm going to go with this. It was a beautiful evening. Uh, we had a great time at Heaton Park. And uh, as the evening kind of progressed, a few of us began to drift away. Some of, the, some of us with kids left a little early. Some of us with kids stupidly didn't. And it just started like a drop of rain fell on the ground. And we're like, oh, it's raining. It's, it's boiling hot. It's, I mean, it must have been about 25 to 30 degrees. It's boiling. Just a little raindrop. And then it started to rain very, very lightly. And we thought, oh, we all kind of just moved under one of the trees next to the papal monument. Uh, if you know, um, is, it, is it called the papal monument? You know, that big... I call it the Pope Stone, you know, the big Pope Stone in, in Heaton Park. We all just stood there under this tree, and, and everyone was like, oh, you know, I'm sure it'll pass in a minute. And then the heavens opened. It was like Manchester was like, are you kidding me? It's going to rain. We were utterly soaked. We, we'd made these little cupcakes with Trinity Church Manchester, like, logos on them. They melted, like... The rain destroyed them. Um, and we all ran home. I honestly wondered whether I was going to see any of you ever again. Um, what was exposed in that moment was our need for a greater shelter. I don't think anybody, anybody who was there would disagree with that, uh, that analysis. And that's the picture, really, of what is happening here. Nebuchadnezzar, the tree, this great tree that filled the world, that provided security and provision for so many people, is being cut down to size so that 
we would seek the greater shelter in the one who will ultimately provide for us. Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, told this story, and uh, it'll sound pretty familiar, perhaps, uh, some of the imagery that he uses here. Uh, In verses 31 and 32, he says this. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. It doesn't look very impressive. Very small little thing. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. You can see what Jesus is saying there, right? You can see how it relates to Daniel 4 today. The gospel invites each of us to shelter under the branches of the tree that will never fail us. We put our hope, we seek our security in so many different places, which means that our lives are totally rocked whenever the tree that we are trusting in is felt. The diagnosis comes back. The exam results are not what we hope for. The phone call comes from the solicitor, whatever it might be. Jesus invites us today to come and find shelter under his sovereign care for us. His kingdom will never fail. We can never be so threatened that it is beyond his power to protect us. We know that because actually Jesus went to the tree for us. He was cut down for us. Galatians 3 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. At the cross, Jesus was cut down to a stump. He was bound by death. But his binding was not to, tur- to wake him up, to turn him away from his own pride and sin. He was bound by death to forgive us for our sins so that we could come and find shelter, so that we could turn away from the folly of resting under the branches of trees that will ultimately be felled and find life in the tree that was bound but has grown back again. Jesus is the one who has resurrected a tree never to fall. The invitation of God to each of us today is to put our faith in Jesus. Some of you, no doubt, are rocking right now. The the things that you trust in are coming up short. You're wondering how secure you truly are. Let me encourage you this morning. Find shelter in the greater tree, which can shield you from the most violent of storms, protect you when the wind howls and your fears are greatest. Jesus is the sovereign one who sits on the throne of heaven, and he will keep all of us who turn to him today for protection and provision. We've sung it already. He will hold me fast. That is the testimony of the Christian through the storms of life. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Well, how do we respond? We're almost out of time today. Let me just wrap up with a couple of things, very briefly. Firstly this, sane people 
worship. That's how this story concludes for us in, uh, in Daniel 4. What Nebuchadnezzar teaches us here, in a very real sense, is what true sanity looks like. He has this huge mental health crisis. He loses everything, but eventually his sanity is restored. Now, I know uh, for some of us, that's not just a broad concept of struggle today. Some of us struggle with our mental health. That's a very real life challenge for you today. But all of us struggling one way or another. And here, I think, is, is an encouragement for each of us. So verse 34 says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Sanity is restored to us when we raise our eyes to heaven. That doesn't mean all our mental health challenges disappear. It doesn't mean that everything gets fixed in our lives. What it means is that we are finally looking to the one who can help us. That's what true sanity looks like. To use the example that Malk started the service off with, little Lila shouting out, help. That is what sanity is. Shouting to heaven, help. And when we look to Jesus, we see what Nebuchadnezzar saw. The most high. Our God, our king, our friend rules over all. He has all authority. He has no limits. And he wields his authority to protect and to provide for us. When we see that, when we start to experience that, what follows is worship. We praise the Most High because we have hope. We have hope of restoration. We put our trust and security in so many other places that have failed us. And it can be easy to become cynical, to become hard in our hearts. When we look to Jesus, hope wells up in our hearts and praise is found on our lips because he is the one who shelters us in the, in the, in the darkest of storms. True sanity is expressed in praise and worship. That's the first thing I want to just uh, close with. And the second one is this. Just an encouragement to us as we tell our stories to make Jesus the hero of your story. I shared this with the membership class the other night, um, but I thought it would be helpful for us this morning. Um, early on uh, as in, in my time as a, as a ministry intern, when I was about 22 years old, I was on staff at a large church in South Wales, and I was asked for one of the staff meetings to tell uh, my testimony, give my story. And I was like, wow, this is, this, it was a big deal for me. I remember thinking, oh my goodness, like, all the pastors are going to be there, all the stuff, these people I really respect. This is, this is a big deal for me. This is a big day. I'm, so I, so I, I thought long and hard about what I was going to say. I prepared it, and then I delivered. Oh, it was unbelievable. Just this amazing, powerful story of my life. Wow. Everyone's going to be so interested in that. And, um, and everyone listened, and it was like, okay, cool, great. And then they got on, we did the rest of the staff meeting, and, and at the end... Um, uh, I nipped into the loo, and uh, the assistant pastor followed me in. And that's always, you know, slightly weird, isn't it, when someone 
someone follows you into the, into the bathroom. And I was like, okay. And, he said, and, and then he started talking to me, which again, even weirder. And he said, can I give you some feedback on your story? And I was like, well, well, yeah, but I mean, it's my story. You weren't there, so how can you give me feedback on my, frankly, amazing story? Like, you know, how, how is that going to work? And he, and he just asked me this question. He said, um, how many times, Pete, do you think you mentioned Jesus? Do you know what? I didn't have to think very long about that answer that question. The answer was none. None. Because we often tell our story to show people how great we are. To show people this is Babylon that I have built with my power for my glory. This is where my security lies with me. But what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn, and what we all have to learn as well, is that we tell our story to point people to the one in whom true security lies. Our failures, our humiliations, are not things that God cannot use. Actually, he takes us through these hard things so that we are able to tell our story and say to people, I found a security that will never fail me. I have put my trust in one who will shelter me through whatever comes. Because my trust is not in myself. My trust is not in the kingdoms of this world. My trust is not in my prosperity or my financial security or my relationships or my career. My trust is in the Most High. The one who reigns yesterday, today, and forever in the heavens. And he holds me fast no matter what comes. That is what Nebuchadnezzar learned. That is his testimony to us today. So make Jesus the hero of your story, Trinity Church. So that other people can come and find shelter in the branches of the great tree the kingdom of God, the one who died for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you that as we lift our voices to you now and turn our eyes to heaven, we see the sovereign one, the one who reigns and rules over all things. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness for trusting in so many different places, so many different things that we believed would give us security. Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you give to us. The joy of money and family and success. Lord, we thank you that you provide all these things for us, but we're sorry that we make them ultimate things. Things that we trust in. And we're sorry that we are utterly rocked when those things are taken away from us. I pray for us in those moments, Father. Teach us that they were not what held us fast, but Jesus is. And that our expression of our need, our weakness, is what actually drives us to you. It teaches us not to be proud and teaches us to come to Jesus. Jesus, thank you 
that you will protect us, you will hold us, you will keep us till the day when we see you face to face. And I ask, Spirit of God, that you would place faith in each of our hearts to worship through the storms that we might discover the security that we have in the sovereign one, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.